Hello and welcome to the I Do Consent podcast with me, your host, Jen Wilson, also known as Irregular Jen. Season 2 is here with the Consent Compass launching on the International Day of Consent, 30th of November, 2023, continuing this work to platform consent as a practice and a tool for making positive changes from the personal to the global. Thanks for listening in. Welcome to the I Do Consent podcast. This special hour-long episode is made for International Women's Day 2022 on the 8th of March, and it's made in partnership with Bradford Community Broadcasting, BCB Radio. I'm based in Bradford District, and it's a really diverse and interesting part of the country. It's in Yorkshire in the UK for international listeners and with a bit of support from the culture team at the local authority I spent some extra time talking to women from across the district. Um, There's a whole range of different voices that you'll hear and a whole range of different experiences around consent. So I hope you enjoyed this special episode And big thanks to BCB Radio, Sophie Powell, Helen Seymour, and Bradford Council Culture Team. Thanks. Welcome to Consent Reclaimed, a project designed, developed and delivered by Jenny Wilson, Director of Irregular Arts in Bradford and also founder of International Day of Consent, a a veritable consent geek. This project has been funded by Bradford Council Culture Team and is for International Women's Day. Jenny, why Consent Reclaimed? I think right at this moment, coming out of the pandemic and two years of lockdowns and all of the world events that have been going on and that are going on, it's an important time to be thinking about what, how we navigate consent um, as women, as, as people of any gender. Um, because I see consent as being not simply this kind of transactional thing that's about sexual relationships and, and intimacy. I see consent as very much being a about our agency and our autonomy and the choices that we make. And so I thought now was a really good time to have a conversation with women across the Bradford district about what it means to them as as we emerge from the pandemic, as we emerge from having worn masks and kept social distance and being shut away from each other and have got used to sort of asking permission for, you know, is it okay to meet and those kinds of things, to sort of seize this moment and reclaim consent for ourselves. It's um, it's a great project. You've spoken to an awful lot of people. How did you find them? Um, through through all kinds of networks and by asking people to recommend other people through my arts networks through the work that I've done with Irregular Arts and the Day of Consent over a while. Um, so there's a range of voices that you'll hear, including 
um, people of different cultural and, and um, ethnic backgrounds, people of different ages, people who work in the arts, in uh, people with disabilities or disabled kids, parents, not parents, um, uh, people who work with survivors of abuse. So I've, I've, had, I've tried to kind of get a, as wide a range of people in the conversation as possible. Mm. Well, you've certainly succeeded. Lots of very interesting voices coming out. Um, just quickly, remind us, Jenny, about the FRIES framework that under, underpins the consent, the consent culture. Yeah, consent culture. Um, yeah, so I see consent, as I say, about being about autonomy and choice and being about the choices that we make in our own heads, you know, what we give ourselves permission to say yes or no to. The, the, the dialogue that we have with other people uh, in intimate settings, in professional relationships, one-to-one, the communication in groups, you know, like in workplaces or in schools or in um, social environments, and at the level of culture and society and the messages and lessons and, and restrictions that, that we face to operate within society. And I use the FRIES framework to help, to help us understand when we're in consent and when we're not. So it's much more complex than this simple transactional yes means yes, no means no. Consent is in place when, we, when our consent is freely given. So the, that's the F of FRIES. Freely given, meaning that nobody's being coerced or forced or, or and that people have the capacity to consent. R is for reversible, which is, you know, you can agree to something, but then think, actually, I'm not sure I want to do this. And you can change your mind. You can remove that consent. I is for informed consent. And, and sometimes that's compl- complicated by not knowing what we don't know until we suddenly find ourselves going, oh, I'm not sure. So uh, needing informed consent. E is for enthusiastic or engaged consent. Engaged consent being not just an absence of no, but a definite yes, I want to do that. Um, And I use engaged rather than enthusiastic because I'm not enthusiastic about the dentist. (laughs) And I do say, yes, please go ahead and treat my teeth. And the S of fries is for specific so uh, consent's in place for one particular um, set of circumstances and it's an agreement between the people that it's an agreement with. It, it doesn't mean that just because you've agreed to something one time with one person, you're prepared to do that all the times with all the people. So it's, um, it's this useful framework for checking whether, whether we are really fully consenting to something. It's a great way to summarise it really well. Yes, and I think I think it's 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 a useful kind of checklist. Sometimes, if we're working, particularly if we're working in groups or working with vulnerable people, or we're in situations where consent feels important and and sensitive and alive, to sort of run through that checklist and check that all those elements are in place. Talking to the people that I spoke to, it was defining what we meant by consent was the was the first thing, and I and I really liked what artist and creative. Kafayat says, uh, she describes consent as coming from respect. I think consent starts from respect, though, before we even get into the word people detest when you try to talk about it, which is consent. Let's start with respect. I think that's the inception, respect. If you can, if you can simply respect each other, I don't think you need to be taught consent. It would happen auto. Respect. 
consent comes from respect. If you respect people, respect other people, understand that it's not all about you. I think consent will come naturally. So the the first concept in the, the prize framework is about freely giving consent, freely given consent, and having the freedom and the capacity to consent. And some of the women I spoke to talked very clearly about how privilege and circumstances can mean that someone's freedom or capacity to consent can be quite limited. So here's Lucy, who's the parent of a disabled child. I really remember one of the things I felt when she was like two days old and I was kind of pretty overwhelmed with her diagnosis. and, And one of the things that scared me absolutely to my core was what was going to happen to her as an adult. And it is because of vulnerability, because of, because of, because she might not be able to, and obviously I didn't know who she was then either, but she might not be able to navigate giving consent or not. And so, and I really remember being struck really hard with that fear. And I still have it now. It's not gone away, you know, because... Things have not changed. In fact, in, in terms of kind of adult social care, in, in a lot of senses, they've got worse. Mm. I think it's always been something that I have felt pretty terrified about and that she potentially she will have a vulnerability that, that won't allow her to or will not give her a, a strong enough hang on, I've made this about her and it's not about her. That she has a vulnerability that will be exploited by others who won't listen to her consent or what's the opposite consent non-consent and so we've started to have conversations now about it's okay to say no and if you don't want to talk to somebody try not to grunt at them because maybe that's because that's her kind of way of saying that's how she says it she grunts and I say you can just say to people I don't want to talk right now and that's all right to say that and people have to listen to you to say that and so I think those really simple things will, as she gets older, lead us on to talk about more complex things as she needs them. She doesn't need them yet, but she will, for sure. But I think if she has those, some basic groundwork, which is things like, I, I don't want to hug you, I'll, I'll shake your hand, or... I don't want to have physic- any physical contact, because sometimes she doesn't. I don't want to have any physical contact. It's all right for her to say, I don't want that right now. And just to give her that vocabulary, that, let's be honest, I don't know if I was ever taught. And uh, what Lucy said was also echoed by Katie in her experiences talking about when she worked as a palliative care nurse with people who were close to death and the very elderly and the very frail and their capacity to consent. Well, you know, a patient could be, you know, for example, you know, quite alert in the evening and able to make decisions then because, that, you know, for them that was a time that they were, you know, awake and, and they maybe, you know, had some pain for us early in the day that were working well. And, you know, it could be that a family member was with them and they felt quite empowered by that person being there. But, you know... That, that same person the next morning might might not be in a position to give that information or might not be perceived to be to be able to give that information. And I think something else that goes alongside that, um, especially with elderly people or with people with learning disabilities as well, which I think is a, a you know another a group of 
a group of people that are quite often, you know, treated as children and, and, and elderly people as well, you know, quite often, you know, treated, treated as children really or treated as the, you know, as the, having the understanding of, of children. And, you know, again, like, you know, just thinking about healthcare, for example, you know, a, you know, elderly, frail person, maybe needing lots of help, you know, with an illness that's that's deteriorating and, and you know maybe looking you know to be in the last few you know weeks or months of their life for example going against medical advice to stay in hospital and that quite often is it's that would be different if it was a middle-aged person that was able to walk out of the hospital whereas the enabling somebody to make that decision against medical advice or quite often that kind of phrase of against medical advice would be the the, the kind of the heading of what was happening in that situation but actually that that frail elderly person would well be just wanting to do what they wanted to do because they wanted to be at home with their cat in front of their own telly, able to go and have a cigarette on the doorstep whenever they wanted to. You know, is that going against medical advice or is that somebody wanting to spend the last few weeks of their life maybe struggling in, in terms of us as professional people or younger people or maybe making, you know, a middle-class judgment about somebody, you know, somebody from, you know, a working-class background and, because that decision isn't one that we think is sensible, that elderly frail person, are they going against medical advice, which is a very loaded kind of judgment, or are they just thinking, I just want to be at home? So consent can also um, be limited by the way that people see us or label us and make assumptions about who we are. And that can reduce our, our sense of ourself and our agency to make choices because... People are kind of limiting the scope of how they see us and putting us in a pigeonhole in a box. And Musarat talks a lot about that in, in the assumptions people make about her as a mixed race person. And then also Shai, who is a photographer, talks about her amazing project, Women in Uniform. And she talks about the expectations that we have on us to, especially as women and girls, to look and present in in certain ways, you know, to to perform and, and to appear in a particular way, to be credible as women in certain situations. People look at me odd. I've been told I'm culturally confused, I don't know who I am. And I'm like, well, actually, I do know who I am. I don't fit in any box because I don't want to fit in any box. You know, I've got this identity and I identify as that person. I don't identify totally as a nation. I can identify from my experiences. I don't go by saying, well, I'm Asian, you're Asian, so that makes us who we are. No, it doesn't make us who we are. Our experiences are completely different. And also, when I started working in Biosan, Biosan was so open. All the, the philosophy was, leave your religion at the door. Remember, we're just people. So we would just, none of us sat there go, well, you're Asian, and I'm Asian, and you're a Muslim, and you're a Christian. None of that. We did. We had none of that. We'd all have conversations, and all sit and eat around the table, and... Every week we'd have different foods. I've had the experiences of all these cultures and communities, and there was none of them. Nobody says I'm better than you because I'm from so and so. We'd say leave that attitude there because I don't want to hear it. But we've had our, obviously we did have moments where we have chaos, but so I, I would say that's like a, a very rich, you know, experience, and I've had that in the last 12, 13 years. So and it's still going to continue. So what I found in the work that I've done is uniform could be the, the literal 
uniform that for example if you're a doctor you have to wear the green the green scrubs or if you're a surgeon you have to wear the green scrubs but also there is a case of so you know for example if you're a doctor you can't wear nail polish either you can't wear makeup on site um but if you're a solicitor you there's an expectation that you you have to look smart yet conservative so you can't wear anything too short or anything that's showing cleavage and there is <laughs> there was one lady that I, I sort of interviewed and she said that you know sometimes i just want to go in a, a a pair of sparkly shoes I just want to do that I just want to go into office with a pair of sparkly shoes but I know that I, the eyes but particularly the male the male gaze will look at me and say why are you wearing that and and also I'd feel quite uncomfortable thinking you know do they think I am trying to are they not going to take me seriously do they think that I am somehow inviting them to make advances it's that kind of thing there's another lady who won't wear red lipstick to work and that's her uniform. So, I, I mean, I like red, red lipstick. I'm, I'm known for wearing it. So that is a uniform of sorts. And she says, I will not wear that to work because it, 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 I, I'm told it's inappropriate for a work context. So, there, like I said, there's a literal uniform. But there's also, for example, the colour of somebody's skin. That could, that could be a uniform. So what, what, I've, what I've heard and what, what has sort of come out, and this isn't me saying that this is the, the women that I've interviewed so far, as we progress in the interviews, saying if you think about it my skin is a uniform because from the moment uh, someone sees me in the role that I, I have like incorporating that moment they see a woman of color in that role they judge me by that first as opposed to uh, and, and they make make a, 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 an assumption about me but when we get talking they'll know that you know I'm, I'm the real deal but I have to prove myself so my uniform has to be more polished it has to be I have to be on time because there's an expectation so there's a Jamaican lady that I spoke to Jamaican heritage sorry and she says in our culture it's always expected there's this thing that um, we're always sort of being as late because I always make sure I'm 20 minutes early and I always come scrubbed up to the night I make an effort when I'm meeting somebody that's especially a male person there's a, a lady who's a mechanic and she said to me um that you know it took her years bless her to be accepted e- and even now she suffers you know misogyny but she's good at what she does and what she does is I mean she doesn't wear any makeup or anything like that but she likes flowers so she'll put on a brooch that's got a, fl- a flower on it but a different kind of brooch every week or every month or something like that so BCB Radio's very own Mary Dowson, who founded BCB Radio and still leads it now and has, has been, been quite rightly recognised and rewarded for her achievements as a woman. She talked to me about breaking out of the mould and challenging the expectations and limiting beliefs about what's possible for us as women. It was, it was a convent school. And the motto, the school motto, and on our badges was serviam, which means I serve. Yeah. So that was that was our school motto. Wow. And in many ways, that has been very much part of who, who I was and actually why I still am, really. Mm. And so the idea of service and being service to others and that being who you are, has been part of my identity. And I think that it was for an awful lot of years, I don't think really gave consent to very much. I don't think I actively felt I had agency or I had 
control of my life because I knew that that was actually going outside the parameters of what people expected of me. Mm. And I think for an awful long time, I conformed to other people's expectations rather than establishing my own. Mm. And I, don't, I think that's probably pretty common for an awful lot of women and, uh, and influences who we are and what we do. I think it, it was, I mean, I've always been incredibly independent. I think I was the fourth child, so I was actually able to be independent. My two older sisters, who are quite a lot older than me, had forged ground, so I didn't need to forge anything. And so, so I've always been very independent and very... Um, and tried things and, and done things and he made myself do things. But I still think somewhere I knew I was going breaking a mould or having to go outside what people expected of me. Mm. So it was never easy to do it. But I kind of did it anyway. But I suppose I had a kind of feeling that guilt, I suppose, that I was, I was stepping outside what other people expected of me and was I being that nice girl or that nice woman or that kind person or, you know... Was somebody going to be upset with what my choices and decisions rather than having that confidence that I'm just being who I am and I'm doing it assertively and confidently and, and, and making sure that, that I'm true to myself and, and being authentic with other people as well rather than fitting into that mould. I think it was, it was absolutely that consciousness raising groups, the feminism of the late 70s, that really enabled me to start to see how I needed to, how I wanted to, and how I needed to develop that sense of agency. And I think also, um, when we think about influences and, and what sort of inspired me with the career choices or job choices that I've chosen, have been about empowerment. And I think going back to what I said about my mum feeling you know, a massive chip on the shoulder, embarrassed by everything and who she was and, you know, don't draw attention to yourself and don't, and I think, you know, I think that has really inspired me to want to want to make opportunities available to, to all women, to everybody, but particularly to women and to, for working class women in particular, to, to have a voice, to be heard, to be listened to, to be out there and to be, to, you know, yet not to feel, not to allow others to put them into, into to keep them down or to put them into boxes or to en enable them not to do what they what they want to do or or to make sure that they know the opportunities that are there for them and they're inspired and empowered to do those things. So I think I think that that I think understanding my where I was as a child and a teenager and my my family environment has helped me to want to make change in life and, and to make those choices. Lisa, who's Lisa Holmes, she's a photographer and she works in Heathley. And she, the photo hub there, she does great work with communities, teaching people how to do photography. And she also works as a professional photographer. And she talked really clearly about how hard it is sometimes for us to remove or retract or reverse consent and she had some great examples from the way she communicates with clients when she's taking photographs of them and how they might come in thinking that they're feeling confident and wanting their photograph taken but the circumstances can change and, and maybe they, they're not so sure they want to consent and how to handle that. So I think there's a lot of times, I, I can even think of several um, times last week 
when I agreed to things that I probably didn't want to do but just because I didn't feel like I could say no. And that's me as a grown adult. And there were nothing horrendous or anything, but I just still, as a grown, I think quite strong female, I was still in certain positions where I thought I can't really say no or I'm uncomfortable to tell them that actually I'm not okay with that comment or I'm not actually okay with you doing that. Like, just I don't want to do that. But And that's as a grown-up, so it does make me think about how do people much younger deal with it when as a 43-year-old woman, I still struggle with that. <laughs> yeah, consent within the photography industry is absolutely massive, and it's like a huge, huge part of it, because ultimately, when you take someone's photograph, you're in their space, you're in their face, they're vulnerable, and they're exposed, and that's just how it is when you take a photo of somebody. And I do a lot of commercial photography. So they come to me and they ask me to take their picture. So obviously they've agreed to it. They've consented to it. They've signed the contract. But it doesn't stop them feeling completely intimidated when they walk into the studio and they're in my space with my area where I'm comfortable and it's all alien to them. And suddenly someone's sticking a camera in their face and every um, insecurity they've ever had about themselves suddenly rises to the surface in their head. And you can, and and that's what you have to be aware of. At that point, you need to go, you're okay with this, and you make them feel comfortable. And you do have to be able to read people and know that, are they just a bit nervous, or are they actually like, do you know what, I don't think I actually want to do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And and you've got to be able to read people, and you've got to have a constant dialogue. I talk, well, I talk all the time anyway, but I talk all the time to my clients to totally make them feel at ease. And I know, like, the first 20 pictures I take, they're not even going to get used because it takes them a while to calm down. But you do, but there are times where people go, do you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Or it might just be certain things like, I don't want to have, I don't want to wear that outfit, or I don't want to stand in that particular pose. And it might be like, that's just not me, I don't feel comfortable, that's not my body language, it doesn't feel natural. And they need to be able to tell you that. And that's really really important as a photographer to be able to have that conversation and put them at ease and make them feel that they have the ability to say I'm not happy with this I'm not comfortable with this and it's no reflection on you it's just it's a very daunting thing having your picture taken there's not many people that run into the studio and can't wait to have the picture taken even the most comfortable people that want their picture taken they are suddenly going to feel like self-conscious when you've got a massive camera and lens and lights on them and everybody's staring at them It is daunting. So consent is massive. Informed consent came up quite a lot. And informed consent can be quite complicated by people not knowing what they know or don't know. And and you can suddenly realise you don't have the information that you need. So Jo, who works with survivors of domestic abuse, had stuff to say about this. And she highlighted the importance of consent in sex education. I think it's partly because that's just how the relationship is and has been and partly because there's a lot of control that goes on within that relationship so that so the person that they're with is is controlling um every aspect of their life really so so he or she's controlling who they see what they wear controlling what they do and and so basically when when all that's playing out and there's this level of control going on, then, you know, the consent doesn't, there isn't any consent there because that person's controlling their lives. And so this kind of like consent about 
sex and touch is just not there because, you know, there's so much control going on. Uh, so as I'm talking to people and, and listening, that's when I can then start looking at kind of like healthy relationships and what these mean and what ingredients you need for a healthy relationship. And then I uh, talk a lot about consent and I print off resources and I just talk around consent and what it is. And, and it's about how you feel and nobody's got a right to do that to you. It's your body, you're in charge, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But I think for me, it's like there's just a real lack of understanding and knowledge. And, you know, the question I've asked is, did you ever do anything around consent in school? Was that ever brought up? And it's like, well, no. So it feels like there's no one talking about it. And these young people have entered into these relationships and it's just not healthy at all. It's quite toxic. And like I say, it's very, very controlling. So, yeah, the importance of of not making assumptions about people came up quite a lot. And I spoke with Sophie and Rhiannon, who are both members of the LGBTQ plus community, and they highlighted how easy it can be if you do make assumptions about people and about what's okay to say and what isn't okay to say. And in particular, what can, what can happen in, in the LGBTQ community is that you can end up outing somebody, talking about them publicly when actually that's a very private thing for them that they don't necessarily want you to talk about. So, you know, our identities are our own identities and it's not okay to talk about people um, without checking that, that they're okay with what we're saying about them. Uh, when I was facilitating a support group in Canada uh, where, like yourself, I had requested that everybody, you know, use pronouns because it, it shows awareness and so forth. But the problem I experienced was that, first of all, it's taking away everybody's agency. They're, they're not choosing to do something. They are forced to do something, which is a massive difference. Mm. But also there was someone in the group who quietly pulled aside and said look I'm actually not out as non-binary um, so I don't really want to put uh, be they but also uh, putting he him would be emotionally painful for me to do that because um, it feels like I'm having to closet myself in a queer space so yeah it's I think it's really important to uh, encourage that agency also encourage the inclusivity of everyone putting them in there but make it optional don't make it mandatory mm-hmm. In contexts where um, there's a lot of assumptions made about who is aware of um, somebody's status, whether that's gender or sexuality, um, I've been in situations where I've told somebody very clearly that to, to stop on a form of com- to stop on a trail of conversation um, when it, it's really obvious that we're about to out somebody. Um, and I don't want them to. <laughs> I don't want them to do that because, it, because what? Literally, when the words have left your mouth, there is no, there is no taking them back. Mm-hmm. And even if um, the implication is there, at least you've not said it. <laughs> um, and to and to very and going back to a consent point of view, um, if I'm very clearly saying stop, or if somebody is very clearly saying stop, please don't continue on this form of. Uh, on this form of conversation or or continue with this trail of conversation you absolutely need to say stop even if the words are just about to leave your mouth and it's and having that being able to be very clear in what you say 
is very useful. I appreciate that it's not always easy for everybody to do, but for people who do find it very, who do find it easy and who um, are, um, are very are aware of being able to read a room, or, or read a read a trail of conversation, it's really important to be able to stand in, even if you don't know who they're talking about. Um, so it's. I think it's it's important to be um, wearing conversation, um, listen to what the other person's saying <laughs> at all times, listen to who you're talking to, and then um, be able to respond to that in a, in a really careful way. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you if you are able to respond um, to an outing um, and to be able to pull somebody to one side and go, that was that was an inappropriate thing to do. Mm-hmm. Then that's I think that's really useful. It's a really useful culture to be able to continue and mm-hmm. um, to protect somebody's identity and to protect somebody's agency. Mm-hmm. If somebody's not willing to talk openly about a situation, then I, like we've like we've all just said, it's really important to respect that. Yeah. And it's also really easy to make assumptions too. Um, say, for example, if someone is extremely camp and is extremely extroverted, and to those of us in the queer community, we're like, oh, that person is clearly one of us. You don't know that for sure if you haven't talked to them about it, if you haven't got their permission to discuss their sexuality or their gender outside of a conversation between you. Um, just because you think someone is a certain way doesn't mean that they are. Don't make that assumption. Have that conversation with them first because um, it's not your place to, to talk about stuff like that. You don't have their consent unless you have specifically spoken them and engaged in that consent discussion. Another thing that Sophie and Rhiannon talked about as members of the LGBTQ plus community is about pronouns and about communication and asking people how they want to be communicated with and not just assuming that it's okay uh, or not just assuming someone's identity um, but actually you know just having that little pause and that little moment of respect to find out how people want to be communicated with. On the most part people are generally respectful um, if I ask them to use she her pronouns uh, which of course I, I do as a trans woman and usually uh, they they don't uh, intentionally misgender me. Um, it does happen on occasion by accident. And as I always tell people, don't focus on it. If it happens by accident, just keep on going um, with uh, the correct pronouns. So just correct yourself and keep on going um, as long as they have, you know, spoken to me about it beforehand and we've talked about what my pronouns are and my consent around those pronoun usage. Um is this gendered woman um, um i i feel like there's a lot of expectation on me as um for that gender and i feel like being able to use they them pronouns as well sort of elbows me out of that expectation a little bit um and stops people from um expecting me to act or be a particular way or do a particular thing um which it just feels sort of more authentic for me. Um, being able to have those conversations has been really useful as well, sort of, to be able to understand why I feel more comfortable with using multiple pronouns. And sometimes people have come up to me and and, and have done a really 
some really lovely things like you said I noticed that you used they them pronouns what would what would you how would you like me to refer to you and I always say I don't mind it's fine um I just want you to be aware that that's a thing that is there as part of me and part of my identity um it's such a small thing to do to put your pronouns on the end of an email in your email signature. I mean, you, if it's an email signature, you can set it once, you can forget about it, and it's what, maybe six or seven keystrokes to put it in there, but it makes such a huge difference. Um, for myself, for example, when I see um, some of the cisgender people that I work with, uh, they work in big organizations like the NHS, they come back with emails, and I see in their, um, in their signatures that they have she, her, even though they're cisgender, it shows to me that they understand what pronouns are, that they understand the importance of putting those pronouns in there, not just for professional use, because it, it helps people to know how to refer to you, but it also says, hi, I, I understand that there are people out there who need pronouns and need them to be used specifically. So it really helps to not only raise awareness, but to, um, well, it gives me that nice little warm, cuddly, inclusive feeling whenever I see it. In terms of Engaged consent, the E in the Fry's framework, that's about the active yes as opposed to the absence of no. And I think what Joe had to say about how domestic abuse had increased during the pandemic, it escalated. Um, there were lots of reports about that during the lockdowns in particular. And maybe that was because of the disconnection, uh, the lack of connection between people and that respite that people could get women could get to escape and into community and and find um solace so yeah something about the engagement there the reason i'm doing this job is because during during lockdown things did escalate and more and more women were coming through to our service uh, and so therefore the need of more workers i don't necessarily think it's about the pressure of a lockdown i think it was about the perpetrators were, were, were kind of like thought, well, you know, there's no one to stop me now. I've got full control over you because you can't go out and you can't do this and that. So, so I think that was a lot of it. Uh, and, I've, and I've listened to, a, you know, a few women on TV and on the radio just talk about that, you know, when we went into lockdown, it, 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 it was just horrendous for them because they had nowhere to go. Because, you know, cause it, at least if you're going out to work or you're doing the school run, you know, and all those places, then, you know, you're getting out for a little bit and being able to escape that person. But in the lockdown situation, and I think that's, I think that's probably why. And again, in terms of engagement, uh, engaged consent, and yes, Musarat talked about how we can bridge differences across cultures and foster that kind of engagement and connection with things like sharing food together. That's what I found is that we can have, you can talk about relevant things that have happened to you and then somebody else, well, that's happened to me and then we can sit there and, well, you know, this is how you deal with it, you know. And that's the one way, that's what I like about being in the community and, you know, just sitting and chatting and having fun. It's not all doom and gloom and serious where, you know, it, it can, at times it's very, it, it can be heavy, but we try and lighten the mood. The first thing we do 
is offer people tea and a drink and uh, a bit of food, you know, and that lightens the mood instantly. That makes people feel comfortable. Mm. And then we know that people are going to come with children, so we set a space for the children, give them something to do and go a bit bonkers in the back. Then at least, you know, they're having a moment in the back, <laughs> in the back room, that's what I mean. We have a separate space, we put arts and crafts material out, put toys out. So the women, and we can just sit there and chat. And I think, yeah, I feel like sometimes the men, the men are quite friendly. You know, it's just sometimes it just don't, have enough space as much as women or they feel like they're not giving that space but we make sure when we're, when we're in groups we give them the space and we sit there and we all chat and move across and have conversations. Lots of the people I spoke to talked about how consent is very specific to the given context you know so what someone says yes to in one situation would be not something they would say yes to in another. An anonymous contributor who wanted me to describe her as single brown female. She had lots to say about the specific context of dating. So with dating, I do a lot of non-verbal managing a man's expectation of the date. So I will say, let's go for a drink during a weeknight. So the especially managing the expectation of intimacy with a partner, because as soon as being of uh, Pakistani heritage and living independently, there's, uh, there's immediately all these connotations. You can't judge people too much for it. We live in the patriarchy. People are who are they are. What, what can you do? Like, uh, they're gonna have the conflicts around the, the Mary Madonna conflict, whether you want them to, whether they think they have it or not, they still have it. <laughs> you can't escape it, in my opinion. It is ingrained in there. They can't get away from it. So there's things that I suggest, like, if you do it in midweek, if you just stick to a bar, that way it's like, no, nothing's particularly going to happen, and you can just check out if you find the person attractive in person, because the internet's a large, you don't know what people are like in their life. Mm-hmm. I, so I do all, take all those steps to manage someone's expectation and make it clear what the boundaries are, I think, because you can't, for some reason, if society say X isn't on the table, this is what X and Y said on the remit of this day is you can't say that. It's not sexy. You can't say that. Um, <laughs> you can't lay a ground rules <laughs> in a bumble chat. Um, so, so I do these things and I arrange a date to meet someone who'd asked quite a few times in the past. I'm like, I'm not sure you sure I'm fancy. I don't want to waste this time. Be asked again. You never know. Actually meet. It's surprising we've never met. So I go along and I dressed like um, modest with a little bit of uh, made an effort. And what I do is I've got a jacket and um, it's very baggy and worn. And if I like the person, I can take it off and like maybe uh, I do a lot of more non-verbal, I'm interested uh, body language. And if I'm not, I normally would wear the jacket over my, like, lap on my knees. So it's very, like, I'm keeping to myself. Mm. And I think quite a good strategy in my head, but it's just my own strategy to myself. And I think it sets a good boundary maybe with someone, especially if they're sitting next to you or something, right? And I've put, at one point, I've put my jacket on my, um, over my lap. So, and there's nothing about me that is suggesting like flirtation. It's all just been conversation. And uh, he thinks he's going toward that direction because we're having these conversations. Good. And 
it's bad enough he said some problematic things. Um, and then uh, he said, well, I think you're feeling well and hope it the next day. I go, oh, do you? <laughs> well, because previously I told him, I'm not sure I fancy you. So it feels a bit, and you would feel pushed. And we're at this point where I have to say, look, following this day, it's not, and it's still the same for me. I'm not really going, I'm sorry. I, re- I just, it's really not happening for me. And I, I tried to make it out like, I'm trying to be polite. So rather than a hard no, I pretended the soft no, like I was torn, I'm not sure. Like, oh, yeah, I just, yeah, really thought. And yeah, it's just really not there. It's really weird, huh? I just kind of made it, like, I'm so perplexed too, why I don't fancy you. It's not perplexing. Um, and so I do know that this thing to placate and make him feel nice about himself and let him down easily and all these things like I'm compelled to say. He goes, really, do you not? And then he took his hand and put it on my knee under my jacket. And he did the classic knee touch, which I think is really interesting because when it comes to the Me Too movement, the knee touch is the iconic symbol of she didn't want that. Like, there were many an incident of the knee touching woman, like, I really didn't want a knee touch. And, uh, and so I was like, oh, the knee touch has happened. This has never happened before. And I gave it a good, like, 15, the longest 15 seconds in my life before I moved my knee. Kafayat also talked about dating and during the pandemic, how lots of people started to explore the possibilities of dating using Zoom, using video calling as a way to meet each other because they couldn't meet in person. And it was interesting what the things she describes about how navigating consent in that different changed context could be different. And she also talked about how people can learn about consent and there's no, no, it doesn't matter how young or old you are, in particular how old you are, there's no excuse uh, oh, I'm too old to change my ways. She has some stuff to say about that, which is great. And uh, and also Lisa had a lot to say about how specific consent can be. During that time, consent got a lot of favours because I am aware of people that started to date over the internet, started to date, go on dates over Zoom. And then because, maybe because it was digital, you get the other person asking questions and going questions permissions going oh can i would you prefer would you like me to and there was that form of formality and respect and i'm like okay if this were in person would it have gone the same way or the digital aspect of it sort of made you feel like i've got to respect myself which brings us back to, it means every single person is capable of consent. It's not a thing of, oh, well, we're raised that way in, during my time. Well, you know, my generation, oh, my God. No one is too big to unlearn what they used to learn and fill it up with new things. It doesn't matter how old you are. It really does not matter at all. Because even if you are like 5,000 years old, if you, if you hurt yourself on a blade or a razor, you would know for next time not to do that same thing just so it doesn't hurt you. Because you can do that, then obviously if you're doing something and they tell you, oh, that's not okay, that means there's something up here that can still assimilate the fact that that's not okay, I won't do it again. If you've got a brain, you're capable. That's my point. If your brain still functions, there's a capability, no age limit. I have a lot of conversation. I have a whole consultation with them before they even come in the studio, so I kind of know what 
what they're wanting, what they're comfortable with, where are their limits, what are their yeses, what are their noes, and all the rest of it. Then we go in the studio. Well, once they're in that situation, what they've said previously may change, and a lot of the time it does. And then they might feel they're not happy with certain things or they don't want certain pictures. And then they have a viewing session where they see the pictures at the end. And again, it might change then because they might go, oh, God, I thought I was going to look awful in that because, you know, I felt like it was really focused on my belly or I I don't like my top of my arms showing and I didn't think I was going to like that shot. And then they see it and they're like, oh, actually, now I like it. So it just, you know, it swings backwards and forwards and you've got to be okay with that. And you've got to allow people to know, you know, you can change your mind as many times as you want. It's completely fine. The same is with them. like then you know they may say oh they're happy for you to use them on social media for your promotions your PR and then they might decide they're not and that may be at a later date I've had that many times where I've photographed I do a lot of Asian wedding photography um age like the makeup artist so I do promotional pieces for the makeup artist and I've had it many a time where the models have been completely fine with it but then later on in their life they're entering a relationship and their, their partner might not want their picture on the internet so they'll come back to me like a year later and go, Jackie, can you take that picture down? I'm like, yeah, of course I can. It's not a problem. But this is the thing. It has to, you have to be able to move with people's emotions and how they feel. So our anonymous contributor, single brown female, also talked about how coming out of the pandemic, sometimes negotiating the really specific context for consent was maybe a bit easier now. Uh, everyone's doing I feel like we're doing things with very a lot of purpose it's they're going to a very specific thing to do a very specific activity and yeah um, which I do like better um, but yeah I'm more and more uncomfortable with like a mooch around the city centre or Forte uh, or something like that the directionlessness of it especially if you can't prepare and I feel like time's so precious or you don't know if they're going for a thing, a small thing, or if they're going for a meal, and then it's how we appropriately dressed, and how we mitigated for weather, and train cancelling, and all this stuff. And for me, it becomes very anxious and very overwhelming. And it's much nicer to know you're going for a very specific thing. Alex, who's a parent to two autistic twin boys. She also spoke about how the pandemic had highlighted certain things for her. And in particular, she talked about how complex it can be to navigate consent personally, to navigate consent as a parent, and with the consent of those around you to consider as well. Um, one of my boys in particular swears a lot. He, um, that's very much part of his means of communication it it relieves his feelings it communicates what he is feeling in that moment and effectively communicates to another person how what they have done has affected him and unfortunately there are certain contexts and certain people who don't like to hear it Mm. Um, and I have been trying to work with him on this very much using the concept of consent is that some people haven't consented to hearing that language from you some people will can and that's okay and if you're with people who can hear it like your siblings then that is fine but if you're pe- with people who haven't then you we need to try and find other ways that you can 
relieve your feelings and and communicate we aren't there yet we are (laughs) fortunately actually our school is being terrifically understanding Mm. Uh, a lot of other schools he'd have been permanently excluded by now so yes it's because there's there's that two-way aspect of consent that I think is the really interesting thing and where a lot of the tension lies because sometimes I see it talked about and it's very much all posited in the within the the experience of the individual Mm. like my consent is the most important thing and a lot of the conversation around mask wearing was was very much under that well I haven't consented to wear a mask so I shouldn't have to do it and that was it that that was the end of the conversation the concept of consent and it's well actually other people (laughs) but that there is there's a relational thing happening here so there's something about consent which is for me not just about an individual need but about a constant relational tension and um, negotiation between your responsibility to yourself and your own needs and that of other people, other people being not just your immediate family or circle, but the much wider collective. So in the instance of mask wearing, Yes, I'm, I personally may not feel like wearing a mask, but actually, where is my responsibility towards the great collective? Should I reassess my own personal needs and boundaries in, in towards the greater good? Now, for some people, because of their own particular needs, and a sensory need around autism may well be one of them, they go, actually, I can't, I really can't shift this far. And then that's an actual special need. A lot of people go, no, actually, you can do this. <laughs> so it's so for me, there is it's a it, it isn't simplistic. It isn't as, as as simple as I'm me and I have my own needs and my own feelings and my own consent and I and I only have to consider that. There, there's a lot of other things to there's myself there's my family there's my community there's the you know there's the world um and as hard as those things are i need to be trying to factor those things in as well some of those social socio-political structural difficulties came up uh, also for lucy lucy's given up a well-paid job to take care of her disabled daughter And she found her choices severely limited by the disadvantage that she now faced. I think the the more the more poverty, the the more disadvantaged I became, the less I was able to have those conversations where I was able to say, "But I don't agree with that," or "I don't." This isn't a isn't a conversation where we've come to an agreement. So, for example, I don't know, if I, if I needed care and I didn't think the care I was getting was very good and I wasn't really consenting to that kind of care because I didn't really consent to being slightly roughly handled or um, 
not got out of bed enough times in a day or that kind of thing. I wouldn't be in a position to withdraw my consent because if I withdrew my consent, they would withdraw the care. Social services would withdraw the care. So it really got me thinking a lot about that, about being actually being in positions of uh, power or um, being in positions of, there's another word I'm searching for. Privilege, maybe? Yes, privilege. That's exactly the word I mean. Yeah. Which allows conversations about consent and particularly allows withdrawing of consent, which people who are disadvantaged don't have. Mm. You know, if I'm in a very precarious job um, uh, and, I, and I've got a, a, a really awful boss, who's asking me to do things that I really don't think I should be doing as part of my very poor pay, I can't practice saying no to that. I can't say to my boss, actually, can we can we have a conversation about whether this is appropriate or not appropriate and, you know, whether we've both agreed that this is a, a, a part of my job or because, because I just won't have a job if I do that. Um, unless my boss is amazing and knows something about consent, which, let's face it, probably they don't. I think despite those very real limits, and in some ways as a response to them, the sense of consent being at the heart of the idea of be the change you want to see in the world, that, that concept, the small things really making quite a difference, and the sense that if we all do them, then we can maybe make change together. I think that was a message that came across really clearly. Here's Mary Dowson again. One of the things that I've been really conscious about of doing is trying to create a culture of where things are all possible <laughs> and, to, and to, to not allow those barriers that people have or to, to inhibit what they're able to do. And I think I've always sort of worked with groups of women and in a way of encouraging, empowering, enabling for change to happen in their lives and for them to realise that they can be the agents of their own change yeah. and to build that confidence in themselves to to see see that actually you don't have to stay in your lane. You, you can actually make sometimes difficult choices, and they're not easy choices, because they're not the ones that people expect you to, to be making. But you can make those, and often things don't happen. <laughs> and I think it's the idea that, that bad things will happen, or people will think badly about me, or it'll be too difficult, or actually, but actually, that you can make those choices, and make, sometimes they're little, sometimes they're big, yeah. but actually just envisioning yourself in a different place, as a slightly different person, or, or the same person, but more of yourself in there. So, so I think actually change, creating change in a culture has been one of the things that I've been really conscious of and wanted to do that in, a, in very small ways and, and, and in big ways too. Change happens all the time, doesn't it? And it happens. It's, it's, it's the little actions that you do yeah. that can make a change. And it's interesting, actually. People come to me sometimes and tell me about how there's something, something in the situation that they've been in with me or with this BCB or another other parts of my life. They said that, that they'll come back and say, Do you know, that really made a difference to me. Yeah. And that's, that's so encouraging in terms of 
it was worthwhile. You know, it, it wasn't it wasn't easiest thing, but it was worthwhile. And that that little that little spark or that just somebody adjusting something in their life or making a bold step. And I think change can happen and does happen all the time in little ways. It's not it's not always about big announcements and big changes. It's just often it's a change in the way you think. It's an, often a just, just a, you can turn a switch almost in the way that you think about things, yeah, and then and then and then that changes your actions. So yeah, that's the thing. That consent is something that we can try to model in the ways that we all interact with other people, thoughts into actions, and making small changes within our own sphere of influence to bring about change through our connections with others. That has the potential to shift our culture and the whole way we live. Thanks for listening to the I Do Consent podcast. Please like, share, and bring your comments or questions about anything that you've heard on the podcast to me, Jen Wilson, on social media as Irregular Jen, or find me on the web at irregular.org.uk forward slash I Do Consent. You can sign up for the mailing list and find out more about the frameworks, training, support and other things available for practising consent and to support the International Day of Consent. Please also visit idoconsent.org. And remember, keep it curious, kind and consensual.